Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host and firm believer in loving your haunted body, Michaela Ann. This week, we are welcoming a person very dear to my heart, Jacqueline Marie Shannon, ritualist, integrative hypnotist, ritual artist, PhD candidate, and dancer, to chat about their research on a topic they have come to call ghostly practice. It's hard for me to concisely state in linear language what this episode is about. That's because it's about poetry. It's about performance. It's about the haunting excess occurred by the churning movements and sacrifice of time. It's about dance as the tension and pulling between not the two sides of the coin, but the very spin of the coin itself. In what ways are we haunted by both memory and possibility? How is performance directly informed by the praxis of ritual? How can we commit fully to the act of becoming within a ritual body that is constantly living and dying? Is your bookshelf implicitly haunted? It is my deepest pleasure and joy to plant the seed of Jacqueline's work in the minds of all who choose to listen. May it spark creative impulses in your soul to dance and move in co-creation with all others, both seen and unseen. Don't forget to check out the Patreon-exclusive episode, which features Jacqueline speaking on their experiences as an academic who is out of the broom closet, so to speak, as well as additional poetics on how living with feet on both sides of the paradox is really the juicy part of living, in which we ourselves become the art. To find more on SaturnVox, check out their Instagram and Twitter at SaturnVox, or visit their website, www.saturnvox.com. If you want to support the show towards goals of better equipment, merch, and bonus material, please check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com SaturnVox, where one can join in on our book club and Discord communities. Thank you. I'm so excited to finally be sitting down and doing this with you. We've been talking about it for a while, um, and I'm I'm such a fan of you and everything that you do. So it's really exciting to be here. Um, Two way street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So my name is Jacqueline Marie Shannon. Um, I am a ritualist, a ritual artist, dancer, um, and ritual theater maker. I am also currently a PhD student at the Graduate Center CUNY in New York City uh, in the theater and performance department, where I research and create work around um, ritual, magic, witchcraft, 
the occult revival and occultism in performance practices, um, as well as theaters of death and haunting and mourning with an interest in memory and time, um, as well as dramaturgies of the body with a focus on technique and affect. So I'm really interested in the ways in which all of these um, subjects come together and in conversation in the creation of art and also in ritual practice for whatever purposes or intention that that might involve. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like the first time we sat down and I was like, who are you? You need to be my new best friend based off of all those words you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we met, uh, we met in New Orleans this last summer, and I was doing, um, I had received a grant for, to do ethnographic research in New Orleans and Los Angeles and a bit in in Brooklyn as well on um, theater witches or um, <laughs> folks who have a ritual practice of some kind who also identify as performers of some kind and how their personal practice um, informs their art and how their art and their technique informs their personal practice and and all of that good stuff. I mean, you know that, but it was you were the first person I interviewed, and we instantly were like, "Yes, we have lots to talk about." I know, yeah. Well, it was sure. crazy because it was one of those things where I started talking, and you were like, "Oh yeah, well, that's everything I already write about." And I <laughs> yeah. was like, "Oh, I had not put it together that theater." And the ritual were so intertwined, even though that was the praxis I was already involved in. So through the co-creative, like collaborative conversation that we had, it felt like it opened up a deeper door of language use. Like I had new ways to express the kind of rituals that I was doing. Um, so I don't know. Can you like explain the kinds of questions you were asking me and like what that interview was about. So people have kind of a grounding on the ethnographic work you were doing. Sure. Um, and I mean, it, we kind of took it in a lot of different directions, right? Whenever, as you know, when you interview someone, lots of things can emerge and want to come out in process. Um, but one of the main driving questions that I'm fascinated by, which I, I've always been personally fascinated by as well as an artist and also as a ritualist um, or a magical practitioner if you will, um, is the the ways in which there's an expectation for art and and ritual practice or even spiritual practice to be held separate in when we're talking about magic in particular, and we're talking about um, haunting in particular. Um, so by what I mean there is um, there's this assumption, it's a sort of anti-theatrical bias. It's an assumption that if something is theatrical, or aesthetic, has an aesthetic quality. If something is a performance, is actually framed as such, as a performance, then it is somehow false or um, it, it cannot coexist with actual ritual practice or actual magical practice or actual um, mourning practice even um, in some cases. And especially in the study of magic in theater and performance, looking at the discipline of theater and performance studies, we see a focus on distinguishing or holding apart, quote unquote, stage magic or what's called the conjuring arts or illusion work. So thinking about stage magicians um, and ritual magic, quote unquote, as or high magic, uh, which is an umbrella term that can you know, cover a lot of different things. But to, to treat them as separate, I'm interested in how they actually can inform one another and 
um, how the use of theatricality and the use of aesthetic and leaning into that and um, amplifying that can actually serve meaningfully in one's magical practice. Absolutely. As if like the ritual itself is just a stage from which I'm like conducting the play, which is my life, which is the spell. Well, thinking about our conversation, for example, um, one of the things that you and I connected around was dance using the body, right? And you talked about your past uh, working with fire, right? Um, And movement and dance and how dance was a part of your personal private ritual practice. And so the techniques even that you've developed in your body are also part of you developing a ritual body that's capable of um, accessing altered states of consciousness through movement, through repetition, through through trance, the activation of trance in the body. You know, so it, there's a lot of crossover there that I think is really useful. The body as a living altar, um, and that's what you were talking about. Were like movements, like affect on the ritual space, being able to move the energy around and using your body as wand, as altar, as cup, yes. as sword. And then yes. the the way that you can transmute and create with that energy becomes so much louder than if you're just thinking about it all in a removed, like, impersonal way of, like, I'm commanding the spirit in the triangle, which is still yes. very aesthetic. It's like, ironically, that's still very aesthetic, Um, But it's considered a very non-performance magic sometimes, I would say, by some people. This this idea of kind of going through the motions, but not actually committing fully to the potential energy of the act itself, the the full possible um, energy and intention and and really fire that comes from committing fully to a, a theatrical or aesthetic element in one's, you know, going through the motions. I'm also interested in the ways in which performance techniques, whether that's dance or theater or ritual dramaturgies in a kind of aesthetic sense, the ways in which those techniques can actually condition our bodies and our minds, et cetera, et cetera, to actually be moved, to condition the body to actually receive information and be able to listen closely and to respond. So it's not just about sending like a kind of performance energy outwards as if to living witnesses, but about what it means to actually be able to condition and open the body to receive impulses to respond to. Yes. I don't know if that's making sense. But no, it does because yeah. it it reminds me of like the stuff we were talking about when you were in town for New Orleans recently. We were at Monsters together um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like talking about I'm tired of – existing in a way in which I'm either told what to do or telling a spirit what to do. Like those seem to be like the theurgic or witch options. But is there a way that we can meet in the middle and have some sort of collaborative co-creation with it? And so your words just now were making me think, well, if everything is a dance, then who is the partner? And the partner can be the wind, you know, the partner can be the music, the partner can be the inspiration of earlier that day when you saw birds crisscrossing in the sky. And that is, I think, the the surrender to the universe, but, but still claiming energy. Like, I am a dance partner with you in this moment and the you being like 
the proverbial vibration of of creative life. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh god, I love how you how you um conceptualize and, and put into words some of these things that, again, we, we both have shared interest in. Um, it's also about being able to not just identify and dance with some of these energies, right? But also to be able to have the power and control to, to be intentional about what energies it are that you are dancing with, to be able to not just kind of become overcome when you when you become so open that you can't even function because everything is coming at you at once. But how can you actually clarify with intention who or what you are dancing with and why? Um, I find that dance training becomes really helpful in that way of thinking about where impulses are influencing my body and where I can shut off certain impulses in order to focus on others. Again, I don't know if that makes sense, but... No, it does. Um, Actually, I was having this thought yesterday because my friend asked me to come down and do some dance for like a video project he was doing. And he was like, what what is your choreography? I was like, I don't know, man, just put on some music and I'll come down and dance. But Mm. as I was dancing or like as I was dancing, it felt great. But then when I looked at the video, I was like, I think it would have been better if I had choreographed something. And that's that like weird intersection between limit and like delineation and the feral expression. It's like the feral expression feels great, but you aren't really fully in control of how that comes across to the other when you're like lost in in the sauce of madness or the, or the flow of whatever you want to fucking call it. But yeah, it's a conversation. It's a dialogue. There's a, it's, it's both a, um, the expression and the release, but also the listening and the receiving and the dance between those two. Yes, yes, yes. I agree with what you're saying. I mean, it's beautiful how often, and I think this was like another reason why I was so stoked on your research because And I've had people on my podcast come on and talk about this before, but it's like training as an artist can be applied to the same thing that you're doing as a magician or as a witch or or a theurgist or whatever. Um, Insofar as doing magic is an art, it is a creative process. And so you don't have to just read magic books to learn magic, you actually should be attempting to engaging in other types of creative play where you can get inspiration on how to, you know, apply these things more cleanly in your own life. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, even, even if we're, if, if, and when we are working with immaterial, the immaterial, right, we're still doing so by way of the materiality of our bodies and not forgetting. It's, I think it's very common, we spoke about this before, um, to get kind of almost hyper-intellectual in your head about what your practice is. Are you doing the right thing? And, um, you know, are you checking off all of the boxes rather than being responsive to the actual energy in the moment? And, and not forgetting that the body is this fascinating access point for having conversation with what with the immaterial um not forgetting the body it was so fascinating so um i think i mentioned this to you as well in october i actually um presented and facilitated a workshop 
at the Occulture Conference in Berlin. And um, it was a wonderful experience for me. I've been facilitating workshops under what I call ghostly practice, which I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point. Um, well, it's funny because that's what I was about to bring. I was going to ask you about it. I was going <laughs> to ask you to tell this exact story. So it's cute that you went and vibed right into it. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I taught this workshop. I've been teaching and developing this workshop over the last eight years. Um, but this was the first time that I actually was able to teach to a group that shared a vocabulary, a ritual vocabulary, um, with practicing occultists and whatever that means. It was still so something that brought everyone together in, in, a, in, a, in a certain space that allowed us to experience something different, uh, allowed me to push into certain areas a little bit more. Um, after the workshop, I, I was overcome by folks who wanted to talk about it afterwards, which is always wonderful. And we went outside and there was this large crowd of folks. And, and one of the things that was really exciting for a lot of people was that, you know, we talk about using the body in ritual and we talk about getting into trance states and we talk about um, the importance of the body and the possibility of the body, but we don't focus enough on actually rehearsing that or actually developing techniques with the body, what that even means in a a ritual context, in a magical context, in an occult context. Um, and that was just very exciting for a lot of people because it wasn't just talking about the idea of it or reading in a, in, in a book, but actually knowing and discovering through practice, um, which is so important. Conversation to me is one of the better ways to learn. I feel like if you get in your head and you sit and you are only dissecting knowledge from your perspective, then you're limited to only your perspective. You aren't opening yourself up to like the true depth of what a concept has to offer until you're bouncing ideas off of another person. I mean, again, it's it's co-creative, you know? Yeah. I mean, and also, again, coming back to the body, the body thinks and knows and learns and has its own perspective. So it just it's a different way to register what it is that you're doing and integrate what it is that you're doing and amplify the power of what it is that you're doing. Did I tell you about my theory of, of the felt sense um, and how to apply that to witchcraft? I'm not sure, but I would love to hear it again. And I'm sure we can speak more on it together. Just like the felt sense is this psychology term that is about we have an emotional body and then we have the felt sense in our body that experiences and holds those emotions um and that you can like feel in your body where your emotions are right mm -hmm. so i thought well i'm having trouble distinguishing sometimes when certain spirits are talking like who is who is this one of mine that I can trust? Is this me? Is this just me? Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, you can feel them in the body. Like you can feel yeah. where they are and the same ones will show up with the same signature. So it's this same idea of like the body knows. Like if the mind doesn't know, if the mind is confused, you can check in with the body and the body will say, I remember this person. I know what they feel like and where they're stored. And then that signature becomes like a check for, you know, the hearing yes. of, the, of the other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things when you're talking about the felt sense, uh, this is also making me think about is um, kind of synesthetic 
uh, training as well. And so some of the, the, it's, it's hard to even just call it generally to call it performance training, but there are performance oriented or performance based trainings that can aim to develop what we might call a ritual body, which is a body that's capable of performing ritual, not just in an aesthetic sense, but in a, a fully embodied, fully, the intention is how do we actually train the body or find the techniques that we can rehearse in the body that allow us to experience multiple senses or the blurring of senses or the dance between senses at once to kind of find a, a synesthesia, to cultivate a sense of synesthesia, which allows us to listen. I mean, that's a, a hearing sound, right? But to listen to the memory of scent or to taste um a voice, you know, I think that that also is very much related to what it is that you're talking about developing what you mean by felt sense, it being something even more nuanced and exciting than simply saying, oh, this emotion is here in my body. There's a whole range of knowledge, a whole spectrum of knowledge that can come from developing that felt sense. Oh my gosh. Whatever other term you might use. I like the term ritual body. I like that ritual body. That feels more uh, accurate to like a holistic concept of what this can be. Like like you were, one of us said earlier, living altar. And I'm like, yes, living altar. Um, but a lot of this poetic beauty that is coming out of your mouth right now about like memory and following the memory of of sound and all of that I think is coming from the ghostly practices um research and work so could you kind of give us um an overview of what that is and and what you've learned and and the passion that you have for hauntings and that intersection between love and grief, sound and movement. I don't even know. It's, it's a synesthesia, mm. like you said, it's art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to enter into that conversation, to, to respond to that, it actually starts from what you were saying about the altar, the body as altar, the altar body, which I would even go one of the reasons I would even push for ritual body, which is a term um, that Catherine Bell uses, a ritual theorist, um, the altar body suggests that there's an inside and an outside with a clear distinction. Perhaps, perhaps that is that's what comes to mind when I'm when I'm hearing that phrase. But what I'm really interested in is actually developing technique for sensing and moving, experiencing, knowing the body where it blurs between inside and outside, where movement across borders and through borders and blurring space, um, where, where and how that is happening. So we do this through um, micro-movement, exploration of micro-movement, of, of um, sensory deprivation. Um, so for example, using blindfolds and focusing on the subtlety of a whisper or breath in a room. Um, we do this through using um, techniques from my training in Japanese buto, which that's something I've been training in, dancing and teaching for over 15 years at this point. Um, using techniques from buto, for example, to manipulate time, to access alternative 
temporalities, slowing down time, speeding up time, um, trying to break down the kind of harsh delineations of then, now, in the future, collapsing time into the moment, collapsing breath into the bones. Again, I know I'm trailing off into poeticisms here, but it is also a poetic body. Yeah, you can't talk about this without poems. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. I actually, it's um, quite a while back, I actually did an interview with a wonderful, um, incredible uh, trans artist and activist named Shakina Nafak. Um, she's also a Buto dancer, as well as a musical theater artist and, and um, actress and a ritual artist. And we talked very much about how we can't do justice to talking about this work in traditional language. And this is sidebar, what makes also being a scholar of magic and ritual and witchcraft very challenging and oh, almost yeah. a joke. Well, that's what I want to um, get into for the patron episode. So trust me, we okay. we will get there to that yeah. that weird space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but just as to say it now, um, there is a paradox to what you're talking about in everything, in everything that you're talking. When you were talking about synesthesia, I'm like, you're talking about paradox and this idea mm. that my inside is my outside and my outside is my inside. And is the ritual body separate or the same or both or neither, you know, and that's Buddhist negation philosophy. Even the idea of paradox even suggest. I mean, that's even feels too polarized to me. It feels too separate. Um, it, it makes it easier to talk about, but I think it's once again, the, the dance here, it's the, the tension and pulling between, um, between, I mean, again, that implies a polarity, but <laughs> getting, getting away from that a little bit, um, and back to ghostly practice and some of the techniques I've been developing over the eight, last eight years, it's really about trying to figure out what conditions are necessary to allow us to cultivate a, a liminal state, a state of in-betweenness where things can happen, where we can notice and respond otherwise. Um, to slow ourselves down enough to listen to the the most subtle of information. Of course, there's also overlap here with folks who've who've trained in mediumship and things like that as well. And the variety of students that I have that I work with, they're coming from all different kinds of backgrounds and interests and belief structures. Um, but they're all they all come specifically because of this notion of the ghost and haunting which again can mean so many different things and does simultaneously to so many different people who are doing this work. But it has to do with the space between presence and absence, life and death, inner and outer, all again, all of these things again, which again, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm presenting, I guess, the paradox or the the two sides of the coin, but I'm more interested, like if you think of two sides of the coin, but then you spin the coin, I'm interested in the dizziness of the spin and keeping the coin spinning and what's possible there. Yeah. It's the middle rather way. than landing. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that the reason why I used the term paradox to explain this concept is because I was 
really yesterday reading a academic article about Bataille and like his views on paradox or like him being a philosopher of paradox. And the reason why they were making this claim was because he was rejected by the surrealists and by philosophers. He was like refused from both (laughs) camps because his work is this weird intersection between the two Um, where he's trying to combine poetry and philosophy in this like one weird mythopoetic statement in which he's also attempting to like disrupt spectacle by making really like loud images, which is like a poetic thing, but they're all for like this weird metaphysical reason and driving to like that point. And so it, it is that intersection between the poet and the philosopher, the theory and the praxis. And that to me is the dance and I think that's why we vibe so well, because, you know, on that that week that I was having all these big magic revelations and you were there and I was like, I am done being a philosopher. Like, I don't want to talk <laughs> about philosophy anymore because what I'm more interested in is the mythopoetic narrative and how the mythopoetic narrative structures my phenomenological experience, which is, of course, yes. a philosophical point of view that I could defend with a philosophical argument, but that w- it would always obfuscate the real truth which is that poetry is the real you know meaning of life in my opinion so I feel like that's what you're attempting to say but it's almost impossible to like delineate in one one sentence because of the nature of what it is it's it's un, unexplainable because it is poetry yes and and this is really um ultimately what the subject of my dissertation will be is trying to figure out how to to dance that dance between um, the doing of the thing, the practice itself, not not more generally, but ghostly practice in particular, and then theorizing that without um, sucking the life out of it or without um, pulling the rug out from under it. Or I don't, I don't know if that is actually how I want to talk about it. I, I think Part of it is I, even in being, um, you know, I I mentioned that I also had an interview yesterday with um, an amazing Brazilian scholar who's interested, who is a student of mine in ghostly practice and is interested in um, living one's performance in in everyday life and the ways in which training can inform your everyday life. So it's very similar, but just not applied to ritual practice necessarily. But um, one of the things that I'm struggling with right now, even in this very moment with you is that I almost, I don't want to commit to certain phrases or certain language yet, or maybe ever, um, because the very nature of the thing um, is, is the shifting in between. And the moment that I land on something, it will also cease to be that thing. Mm-hmm. The moment that we see the ghost on stage, we come, become aware of the body of the actor. But the tension in the space, the affect, the, the sense of presence of a, of a ghost on, in a play, in a traditional sense, the implication of a presence can be more powerful than the mapping of a presence onto the body of an actor, where we encounter an empty stage, where we sit in darkness as an audience and hear just the tiniest sound of a bell in a corner. That's going to be so much more impactful than, you know, someone coming out in a white sheet. on stage. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that this is making me think about is um, the actor is both the ghost and not the ghost. 
and mm. in or mm. and that's like the beauty of theater because in when you watch TV or you're watching a play or any kind of theatrical performance, there is this expectation of suspended disbelief in which you know yeah. it's it's not happening, but you can still emotionally connect to it like it is happening and experience mm-hmm. it like you are the one living it. And that is, oh my God, the beauty of story, the beauty of myth, the beauty of performance. And I think that it would make sense that your search for this moment in which the ghost is real, the actor is real, the stage is empty, the stage is full. You can't do it anywhere else but the place where people are already ritually engaged in the act of suspended disbelief. Yeah. And I I realize I'm going to be responding in a slightly different direction, but I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's making me think of something that I will share that's very central to what has now been developed into ghostly practice and is continuing to develop and evolve. But that is um, finding oneself between suspension and release. Speaking of paradox, um, it's very much related to Diderot's The Paradox of the Actor, which is a Ah. famous theoretical text in theater history in which he talks about the necessity of the actor to simultaneously give oneself up into a role, almost in a trance state, of to lose oneself in a role, but also remain tethered enough in one's consciousness that one is on a stage. So as, for example, to stay in the light, to not fall off the edge of the stage, that there's a sense of inhabiting simultaneously both mm. of these states, right? I and got so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so this, this also comes into play, not just as a performer, um, but when we're doing ritual work, when we need to enter into a state in which we're giving ourselves up we say fully to what it is that we're doing, we can't really do that and feel safe doing that without still being tethered in some way, knowing we're going to have to come out in some way, right? Unless someone else is holding space for us. But even then, you're still aware. And so ghostly practice, for example, is a very useful collection of techniques for training the body, finding um, the capacity to inhabit both of those states more fully. And at the center of that, the dance between being tethered to the, the kind of conscious body or the, the, the material body or um, the, the thinking self, whatever it is that you're tethering, tethering even sounds strange, but that's the image that's coming to mind. Um, this, the dance between that and what you give yourself up into, whether that is inhabiting, um, taking on a spirit or a role or simply entering into a trance state, but being connected still with oneself enough to be safe, Mm. right? The space between that, that's where something interesting happens. That's what, that's where presence is cultivated. And for, for people who study with me, who are interested in performance on stage, for example, it's such a wonderful opportunity to cultivate stage presence, but also just presence in general with other people, with one's work, with one's praxis. Yeah. (laughs) Between giving oneself up and also not losing oneself completely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And actually this came out of my, going back to the question of ghosts and and working with necromancers and and whatnot, my own, you know, hard lessons truly, um, 
hard lessons around keeping myself safe and keeping my students safe in a context in which we are working with greater forces. We're working with um, spirits. We're working with sometimes traumatic memory. Um, we're working in spaces that carry um, a traumatic or affective charge or whatever the case. We see this in acting classes too, that you know, there's an expectation sometimes to bring uh, a training actor, to bring a student to a place in which um, they've lost themselves completely into sobbing and somehow that's celebrated as being you know, a skilled actor but that's actually not a safe place to bring someone. Yeah. But that my interest in developing ghostly practice to what it is now has a lot to do with my own needs to be able to work with spirits while also remaining safe and doing so and having a place to return to, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I, I adore that I have asked a lot of people on the podcast, like what they do to, to stay safe. And like yours is, seems to be coming from this more like dynamic place of play as opposed to fear. Um, mm. And I appreciate that because if you're attempting to co-create with the unseen and with the others who share this world with us, um, then it needs to be play. And that's, I mm. think, a part of why coming at it from a lens of we're performing or we're dancing together as opposed to some sort of struggle, learning how to control the other or subjugate the right. other. It's so powerful, in my opinion. I mean, the, the, I have a lot of the same beliefs as you, and that's, sure. that's why we work together so well, I think. But yeah, this vibes so amazingly in my heart. Um, I do want to ask you, though, to explain maybe more of the necromantic quality. Like, what is it about what you're doing that calls in the other? Um, how is how is the other bound or sensed, um, smelled, held in memory? I don't... I don't mm. Yeah, so this is a, a somewhat challenging question, not that all questions aren't challenging in their own ways, because, and this is speaking specifically around ghostly practice and the workshops that I teach, um, because all of my students are coming to the work with different belief structures and needs um, and comfort levels around not just the idea of spirit or the other or ghosts or haunting, um, but even the words themselves. Mm -hmm. And and so I try to hold it open and invite all um, of what folks need as they come in um, and it's try, to, try to structure the work to facilitate an experience that speaks to all of those needs and beliefs. Um, but one of the ways that, I mean, to be kind of practical and, and really simple to, uh, to answer that is... Um, I have all of my students before they come, they're asked to, they're invited to um, select an object that represents a ghost for them in some capacity, whatever that means for them. Um, and again, that holds open the possibility for a lot of different understandings of what that term, what uh, that word itself as a vessel or invitation can be. Um, they bring in an object and we 
we create an altar to start class. So the class itself, the workshops are in silence, but everyone begins by placing their object at the altar um, and then laying down in a space in the room. Um, and seeing all of the objects together being chosen for whatever reason that they're chosen, um, which remains secret in the room itself becomes a, uh, a haunting that informs the affective conditions of the work itself. Um, it frames the entire experience ritually to enable a depth and a surrender and a curiosity and uh, transformation just in the course of each workshop. So again, it's really dependent on who's in the room because sometimes I've worked with people also one-on-one -on -one who are working very much through grief and they're actually working with a very particular spirit or ancestor mm -hmm. or a, a very specific loss, for example, or a very specific presence that is um, making itself felt or known in their life. And they're trying to figure out how to dance with it um, in a way that is healthy and sustainable or co-creative or whatever it is. Again, it's very personal to everyone who comes in. Um, but one thing I always remind everyone too at the end of the workshops is that there's this presumption when, when people come to ghostly practice or it has been in the past, we've heard this phrase, like you need to get rid of your ghosts, quote unquote, or, you know, um, to kind of cut the cords. I don't know. I love my ghosts. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Right. But, but there is this, this presumption that that's the end goal. Like you come to ghostly practice to figure out how to rid yourself of a ghost or something like this. Um, I, remind everyone and insist that that's not the end goal and in fact is I, is not possible. That it's actually about renegotiating our relationship with spirits, mm -hmm. with ghosts, with that which haunts us, with our memories, with time, and with our bodies simultaneously, which itself is a haunted vessel, right? That, that, it, that is a, a map of time, of a lived life, and an index for the future. So it's, yeah. <laughs> I got chills at that one too. <laughs> I love this um, conception of, I mean, and that's why Saturn is Lord mm. of Death because he's Lord mm -hmm. of Time. Uh, but he also rules the body, I've always said. Like Saturn lives in the body and you've kind of given me this aha of, oh yeah, because I store all my sacrificed time yes. and feelings and emotions in my body. And I think that's, I've been playing with this idea of like, how do we get rid of the excess mm. that we carry? Because once we make that sacrifice or really like consume whatever, and, it, and it's been changed, we carry the excess of that within us. And that can result as yes. pain, both like physical and yes. emotional. And that is what I find so powerful about the expressive dance and the expressive movement, because then it becomes, how can I connect with this energy and, and retransform it and expel it into renewed energy? So once the energy is destroyed, transmute it, turn it, you know, clean it, purify it through the through dance, and then release it back out in the world as energy renewed where you can now create with it. That's like the alchemical process right there, exactly. I feel like. Absolutely. Yes. And it's all about really, we have to remember to move and be moved. 
And it's so easy to forget that. But also, even in absolute stillness, to remember that our cells are vibrating always, that we continue to breathe as we're alive. Our breath breathes us even as we can control the nature of that breath, right? I love that idea of the the body, how you, how you even extended that idea into um, the body being a kind of uh, evidence of the sacrifice of, t- of time, right? And I love that, thinking about it through the lens of Saturn. It makes sense. I mean, it's a reminder of our mortality that we are, you know, when, we, when we're born, we're also beginning a process of death, right? Mm-hmm. And so our entire life is, is ghostly practice. It is, it, it's a form of becoming comfortable with death, which is simultaneously present mm-hmm. with our life, right? It is the present absence of the end that is always there, not as something to fear, but as something to be in a dance with the the being a lot, the being, mm, the most exciting part of being alive, I think, are these moments where we are very conscious of and honor, um, honor death. Yes. And you know, what's, what's interesting about that is like, once you kind of got me on this kick of the, the theater was almost birthed from ritual and then oh, I started, absolutely. yeah, exactly. Because once I started looking it up, I was <laughs> like, here are all these ritual dances that are basically necromantic fertility rituals. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's an interesting concept because you've talked about death and you've you've talked about life and how they are so intertwined. And that was really the birth of theater was yes. people longing to express and and transmute that excess anxiety into something creative that they could work with by mimicking signals in the sky or the systems of the land, which already encompasses that mystery. So it's like by mimicking the other, we ourselves as human have a better chance at staying whole, it feels like. Mm. Yeah, and and also... Mimicking the other is also, it creates a third self. I mean, it in and of itself is generative in and of itself because one can never actually be the other in the mimetic process. We're not simply becoming another, but we're we're creating something else altogether in between, right? That's completely off topic, <laughs> but it just made me think of that. No, I mean, f- um, funny enough, that like lines up with Bataille as well because his idea that like, once the one splits off into two, you've now had death of one. There's like no returning back to one. Exactly. You have two new magical children, two yes. and three. But like the one, you can never return once it has done that initial mitosis or whatever. So all these ideas of death and continuity and the longing for continuity, but like the celebration of the fact that I can create because there is death, all of these things do feel really intertwined. Um, You just heard me go, oof, because something else just came up for me, which is very much related to this as well and related to haunting and theater. Um, It's also this idea that... So Marvin Carlson, who is this incredible uh, theater history scholar, um, also um, a recently retired professor at the Graduate Center at CUNY, just incredible. He has written many books, uh, but one of his his books that 
has transformed my life and my scholarship certainly is called The Haunted Stage, Theater as Memory Machine. And one of the things that he talks about and introduces, which ends up influencing many other theater scholars who are interested in uh, hauntology and spectrality and ghosts and whatnot, is that theater is always haunted. The very idea of theater itself, of acting itself, is always haunted. It's haunted by past productions or past characters, or there's always something else that's unseen that's informing what we're witnessing in any given moment. And every time one rehearses something, it's never the same thing, just as you were you were just mentioning before. Mm-hmm. It's every rehearsal, every repetition is with a difference. And I think that what excites me about that in thinking about the possibility, going back to the ritual possibility of renegotiating our relationship with our ghosts, right, mm-hmm. um, is that it means that even the ghost itself, even the haunting itself is constantly in a state of change. And because every time you rehearse something or repeat something, it's with a difference. It's in that different space that allows change to happen. And that accumulates over time. It can also shift over time as you make different choices, as you're in different contexts, as you're doing ritual work with different people um, at different moments in your life with you know other ghosts that have latched themselves onto you. Again, however you're defining that for yourself, it's, it's a very exciting prospect or idea um, that we can keep our ghosts in play and play with them in that way. Yes. Even as we're honoring them, even as we're in a state of, of, of grief, um, you know, whether, um, as I also believe we're all, as human beings, we're constantly grieving. And certainly there are plenty of things to grieve for personally, socially, collectively, environmentally, which also makes this work even more important right now, I think. That's always been important. <laughs> it's always been important. Yeah. I'm in love with what you do. I'm obsessed with the way your mind works. Um, mm, likewise. <laughs> I love you. Um, <laughs> that's why I keep saying, like, en- enough with the philosophy. Let's, like, return to mythopoetic narratives. Because mm. I do feel like we've gotten kind of sick as a culture by committing so much to swords. And it's kind of interesting, like the the Magus tarot card, he is a magician on stage. And there is this like concept that Mm -hmm. he's juggling all of the four suites. So it's not just swords, like you're not going to solve everything with mind and logic and intellect alone. And if we really want to be magicians or like be actors or performers or or co-creators of the haunting on stage then we need to allow for those swords to be informed by the breath of fire which is that flow state or the grounding tether of safety that comes from you know a community a house being provided for your nourishment needs with food just as much as the liminal space that tricky emotional liminal place and web of poetry music and art has to be a part of it and you know even in my own beautiful city of new orleans the arts are being attacked which is probably the last place in the country that it's being attacked so if it's being attacked here it's got to be really bad everywhere else (laughs) so that 
tr- troubles me. That troubles yeah. me. I grieve for that, you know? Yeah. And I don't mean to laugh at that, but laughter is its own form of affective response to, to a, a complicated truth. Um, but I want to draw attention to what you even said with that, with the card, is that it's the juggling between mm-hmm. where the magic lies, where the potential magic comes in the, the movement between and among all of the pieces, um, not in the settling of any one, right? But in the relationship and keeping them in play. Um, you know, the, the card itself is haunted by magic's potential. Um, and I find that to be very an interesting thing to think about as well, of what it means to be haunted by the potential of something, um, as much as by the loss of something. So to be haunted by that which has not come about, that could and, you know, and may not um, simultaneously, many different paths and and possibilities. Yeah, possibilities are scary and also yeah. exciting. So I I, I totally yeah. vibe with that. Um, what I thought was interesting about what you were just saying is that the Magus, as a card that kind of says words have power, but there's also because it's ruled by Mercury, who's the trickster, is this like admission that words only carry the meaning of what you put in them. Words mm. are tricky. Words create illusions. There's no inherent meaning of value in any word. And yes. that's a lot of what negative philosophy is all about, is like negating the self down to the logical point of total negation because once you start viewing it from a logical perspective you realize nothing is true and nothing makes sense and we don't really know anything and we're all just kind of creating our own reality but to juggle to juggle that and to admit it and to take it and say I'm gonna play with this Mm -hmm. is this admission that two supposedly opposite things can be true at once and that's also Mercury's power um, yes. Gemini and Virgo, this like idea of the up in the air Mercury and down in the body Mercury and how can I be two things at yes. once. It can be true that words have power and that words have no meaning at the exact same time. And to know that gives you more power than to not know that, you know? Yes. Oh, goodness. I'm having uh, – my body is covered in chills right now um, <laughs> with with thinking through that. Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. And this is going back to some of the techniques that I've been working with in ghostly practice and why some of that has, has come out of the Japanese Butoh training is that in in Butoh, one of the things that I found so fascinating about it when I was first exposed to it as an undergraduate in, in my dance and movement studies department is that in a, in a traditional or not a traditional, but generally in dance training, we are taught that there is a center that we have a center that we make strong, we make our core strong, and we move from that center, that that moves us and makes it possible for us to dance. In Butoh, there is an understanding that there are multiple centers in the body, and some that are indirect conflict, some that are seem impossible, and yet we dance through the impossibility of that coexistence. So there might be a, a center that is, you know, right behind your belly button, and there might be a center <laughs> at the, the left bottom corner of your heart. And also there is a center at the base of your spine and the crown of your head, and also a center in the back corner of the dance hall uh, or the room, right? And you're simultaneously dancing between and through and with and against all of these centers. And I think that this idea of multiple truths, the coexistence, the possibility 
of holding and moving with and through and against multiple truths is also so necessary right now. It's something that we as a as a society, as a community, as a culture, as well as individually, but we need to be able to um, to work with that. That is its own kind of, for example, getting into the social political question of this, we are haunted by our incapacity to hold space for multiple truths. And I don't mean hold space as in, oh, everything is welcome here. And then right when it's spoken, we just pretend it was never spoken, but to actually engage it in a dance and to move together in, in this kind of transformational uh way with transformational intention that when we put everything in movement, we bring everything into a dynamic state, then we can create something new altogether, something else that we haven't even been able to experience or imagine. My gosh, I adore this. And it is a political problem because if we tell people that they have to be defined a certain way, then that definition of what they think they have to be becomes a burden. And mm -hmm. that's where you see so much pain in people. Yeah. And I could talk about it in specific kinds of identifications. Um, I think about it a lot personally in terms of gender because yeah, I don't exactly. have one, whatever. Um, and what does that mean and what does that imply? Mm -hmm. Anyways, what I think is really interesting about that you're talking about all this, though, is, well, you're like a Leo stellium, but in a dark house. So I don't want to give too much of your chart away. <laughs> it's okay. But I've been reading a lot about like this idea of the chthonic sun, or I've been playing with this idea of the chthonic sun. And one of the readers, again, Bataille, sorry, I wanted to not make it seem like I'm obsessed with this guy, but I have been reading <laughs> him okay. a lot lately. Um, <laughs> it's funny because you were saying so much about movement and the churning mm. and the fact that we're always yes. moving. And that's like Bataille's idea of the chthonic sun is like everything is moving all the time because the sun is moving all the time. Mm -hmm. And the sun as the tracker of time. So if we're, we're using sun as tracker of time instead of Saturn, we're bringing in this kind of performance, the tracking of time, the continual movement. It's always happening. Not because, like, and we as humans conceive of time only because the sun rises up and the sun rises down. And this, like, performance of... I'm alive and then dead, the sun rises and then falls. So I don't I don't really have a point here besides that <laughs> I think it's insane that you as like a very chthonic sun person yourself are mm -hmm. mimicking these same ideas as if it doesn't matter who said it. And that's why I'm like this emphasis on academia and we can actually maybe transition to that if you want. Sure. But this emphasis on academia being like, well, who said it? And like, why did they say it? And what is the history of the tradition of, of where they said? And of course, that's important. But it's like, people are just listening to the whispers of the muses. You don't have mm. to have read that person to have gotten that same inspiration. It already lives in you through the allotment of like the all beings wisdom that was yes. given to you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, honestly, this is something I'm sure you and I will continue talking about, too, because we have been talking about scholarly writing and thinking and, and where it overlaps and where it doesn't in our own uh, practice. 
But something that I want to and need to work on for myself is making space for, I don't like that phrase necessarily. Um, What I want to and need to practice for myself is actually allowing myself to write my experience and write the information that I receive in these kind of very direct and authentic ways without worrying too much about where it's coming from. I think it's related for me in my writing now, in the kind of writing that I want to be doing and that I need to find in order to make my own academic path sustainable and honest for myself, is actually related to holding these multiple truths. It's the chthonic sun. There, there's a <laughs> there's a sense of of can I allow for receiving and expressing information coming from direct sources. Um, not necessarily direct sources, but in a, in in a, in such a way that is a little bit more performative itself. How far can I push performative writing when the writing itself is a ritual? When there's a ritual necessity to writing for writing about ritual, I'm not interested in in charting the history of. Um, though I mean, it would be an easier path for me, for example, to write about. Um, you know, looking at different case studies and examples in which we saw ghosts on stage, um, you know, or um, (laughs) representations of witches in theater across time and space, which I am interested in. um, But that doesn't, that's, that only scratches the surface contextually of the bigger questions that even animate my interest in that, right? I'm not necessarily just interested in the representations or examples and describing examples historically uh, of these moments, but digging a little deeper into that which can't be seen or can't be scribbled down in the archives, but that can be perhaps felt in the room where something else is happening. Um, We need to have a different set of frameworks and different vocabulary in order to make sense of the more interesting questions and the power of performance in those contexts and how they can translate in practice now. I don't know if any of that just made sense. (laughs) No, it does. I just, I'm wondering, so is like your, are you attempting to dictate a, a field manual? Like here's, here's your workbook on how to teach your, or here's your like teacher's manual on how to host your own ghostly practices (laughs) workshop type of thing, or. That's an interesting question, actually. Um, And I wouldn't say that it's exactly motivated by such a thing, but what I am interested in is developing perhaps a ghostly practice dramaturgy, Mm -hmm. which the intention behind that, um, so dramaturgical theory in a a nutshell, um, is, is related to that which makes something possible, that which brings form to an idea. Um, And I'm interested in, you know, what is it that ghostly practice is allowing us to do? Not just on a technical level, not just actually in practice, but the the idea of it, if I were to write a dissertation that felt more honest for me, if I were to write a book, for example, that was really doing something exciting for me, it might look like some theoretical analysis, some mapping historically, but a distillation of that and an application of that towards generative prompts for movement, trying things on, trying uh, experimenting, you know, weaving that in 
organically throughout a text in a way that reminds us as we're reading, which reading itself is also a ritual, right, of our embodied experience of reading, of our emotional and energetic experience of reading, of what it means to work with a book or an article um, paper with words on it or, you know, wherever it is that you're reading, that as a, as a ritual object that carries a charge and potential. So what is it? These are all things that I'm having to, it's easy for me to teach other people, but as a student myself, mm -hmm. actually, I'm having to remind myself like, wow, this bookshelf is filled with magic and it's totally fucking haunted with potential and pain and, you know, absence and all of these things. There's so much to consider in that whole process. God, and I'm very okay. excited to do that, to, to dive into that. Dude, <laughs> that was so juicy. That just made <laughs> oh, me God. so happy. Um, <laughs> yes. And also it made me remember where I was going with the point of the chthonic sun earlier, Great. which is, <laughs> is that the, if the sun is constantly living and dying, rising and falling, the self is constantly alive and dead, alive and yeah. dead. There are never, every day I am a new self. And for me to attempt to con constrain my sense of selfhood to who I was even two hours ago is an affront to the movement of the sun because yes. all selves are constantly becoming. And the reason why I thought of that was because it's like, first of all, everything that you're saying right now is so on the money and beautiful and playful and sensual and romantic and scary and all the things. But I know that by the time you write whatever it is, it's not going to look like what you just said, because it's going to be constantly becoming. And those the the hauntings of the possibilities are so alive, even in the poetry of the words that you're speaking right now. And that's breathtakingly beautiful to me personally. I thank you so much. Um, you flatter me. <laughs> um, but I mean, on a kind of nerdy practical level, um, both as a student, as a teacher, as a writer, I mean, I like to, for example, write, and you may have heard this technique before, but write not to a place of, of feeling like you have resolution or completion, but to enforce yourself, to force yourself to stop prematurely, to stop at an ellipsis. Uh, mm. to allow your your work to be haunted until you return to it. I also, I teach in the theater department at Brooklyn College. And uh, last semester, I taught an incredible course with some incredible women. Um, it was women in theater. And the en entire semester was, um, we really investigated ritual as we were weaving in and out of, of a lot of theater history and theory. Um, but one of the things I would have them do often was walk around the room while I'd play music and then I'd pause the music and they had to find the, the first possible person and have a conversation inspired by their readings from the night before. And then the moment that I started playing music, they had to um, release any attachment to the idea that they had. So wherever they were in their sentence, wherever they were in their thought process with their partner, as exciting as it might have been, they had to immediately practice dropping it and moving on. And so we were cultivating a haunted space that was a space of potential. So it's thinking of, of haunting as not something heavy or something to avoid, but to embrace itself as a technique for creation and life and yes. you know, generative thinking and experiences. Oh my gosh. I got chills. 
you know what's so powerful about that as like a technique of non-attachment <laughs> when i allow space for the haunting i give life and my body and myself permission to be uncomfortable and like mm -hmm. part of my religious practice which i actually don't talk about on the podcast a lot is complete and total uh, devotion to like the all being. And so for me, it's like the haunting is an aspect of the all being. So for me to avoid things that cause, I mean, obviously everything has a limit. Please do not take what I'm saying to the extreme podcast world, but to avoid pain or to avoid uncomfortability is to, as if to say to God, fuck you. Mm. But in my mind, I want to dance with the creator. I want to be a co-creator with the creator. And then that means that even if I am scared or even if I'm afraid, even if I'm uncomfortable, to allow room for possibility, to allow room for the haunting, to relinquish the need to self-identify or grasp or try to yes. take control of, of a narrative that was never fully mine to begin with. Mm. Um, that's the power, in my opinion. Like that is that sweet spot of power. Yeah, it's a, a sweet spot. And, and also, again, to be able to dance in that in-between space with a feeling of... of strength and safety that is not a silencing or a suppressing but it is is really something else altogether so what it is that you need to be able to really be in that space beautiful yeah a blessed third thing whose name is art <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I think we're good to transit. We've got enough we can transition into Patreon episode. Patreon. I'm always told I pronounce that name or word wrong, but I don't give a fuck. It is what it is. Um...